If you have your Bible, open it to the book of John. As we will continue working through that book, today we're going to look at the first nine verses, and I know that that has some of you concerned because you're probably thinking this is going to be nine times longer than last week. Uh, that, is, that is not true. Math is, is not always applicable to Scripture, and so uh, that's not the case, but we will be looking at the first nine verses today. In, in World War II, the Germans thought that they had uh, what appeared to be at the time, and to them was always going to be a sort of an unbreakable code machine. It was called the Enigma machine. And Enigma was able to encode almost anything for the Germans, and they changed the code daily. And it was a unique code in the way that it was handled. Most codes that you might use for communicating with your friends in elementary school or otherwise was, would be sort of a thought for thought or a letter for letter. So if you were doing a very simple code, a very simple substitution, you might say that A is going to actually represent B. And when, so when you see an A, you're going to think, oh, that's a B. When you see a B, you'll see a C, right? So you just do a simple substitution. Now, when you do things like that, eventually those codes can get broken, but the Germans had a much better system. The code flipped for every single letter. Every single letter was different. And so you might have two S's in a row that were represented by two completely different letters in the code. It made it incredibly difficult to break. The Enigma machine's brilliance was in its ability to do this. So you might read... An A here being a B, and then the very next letter, which should be an A, is again something different. It's an H or a G or something like that. What made this even more amazing was that all of the possibilities built into the machine totaled 158 quintillion, 962 quadrillion, 555 trillion, 217 billion, 826 million, 360,000 different possibilities for what that code would be. Remember, this is in the early 40s. You can understand why they would be very assured that their little code was never going to be broken. These codes changed daily. And so even monthly, they would get, hand out monthly sheets was how everyone knew what settings to put the machine on. And so for times, the allies might get that sheet and having an Enigma machine, they might be able to break it for a month, but then the next month came and it was all lost. There's no long range planning. Even if they were able to, which there's no way possible they could, check every code a million times a second. It would still take them doing a million times a second, five million years to go through all of the codes. There's a reason why they thought it was impossible to break. But there's a man named Alan Turing, who's a brilliant mathematician, and he was able to break the code because he, he picked up on a couple of things that were kept consistent in there, and the Germans had a couple of flaws, and he was able to break the code. He made a machine that he called BOM, which isn't actually for blowing up bombs. It was named after a, a different Polish machine that the, the uh, Polish army had come up with in order to break the code. His was better, though. It could break the code at any point in time. As a matter of fact, his machine worked so well, it took it about 20 minutes to break the code in the early 40s, which means that there's a lot of ingenuity that went into that. Code breaking is fascinating, but 
we use codes all the time. We use acronyms. We use shortened forms of letters. We, as parents, oftentimes talk in codes. When our kids can't spell, we spell things out. We're going to the Z-O-O. And then we foolishly teach our kids how to read and spell, and so we can't do that anymore. You can't even mouth the thing to them anymore. I don't know why we do that. It was better when we had code. So we do this all the time. We have phone uh, codes for our phones so that people can't break into them. We have codes for our garages so that people can't break into them. We have codes all over the place in order to keep our stuff secret. John, in his gospel, does not use a code per se, but he definitely has a lot of symbolism. And that symbolism needs to be unpacked. The symbolism isn't always obvious, and what's more, it sometimes seems rather pedantic. It seems pretty plain and, and easy, and, and if you don't understand what he's saying, you wonder why he would drop in certain details. But today he's going to let us in on a little secret throughout the rest of his gospel, and that is this, this interplay between lightness and dark, light and dark. As we read through these verses, we're going to see that he is going to tell us exactly what he means by these as we go through. And when we talk about this being a code or symbolism, you've got to understand, I don't mean it's like the Bible code. So if you put all the words of, of the Bible in a certain order and you can do like a little crossword thing and find out secret hidden messages uh, so that God will give you a, a club ring or something like that. That's not what's going on here. It doesn't work like that. All we mean is, John has symbolism packed into his work. This is the same John, by the way, who wrote the book of Revelation, so this shouldn't come as a huge amount of surprise, that he loves symbolism. And the greatest piece of symbolism we're going to pick up on in his gospel is light and dark, and he introduces that to us today. So listen for it as we read verses 1 through 9 of the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is the word of our God. First thing we want to talk about is Jesus as the creator of true light. He is the creator of true light. If you were to be asked by somebody, if you were to go out on the street and ask somebody, what is the thing that makes God God? Is there one thing that you can pin down, one, one thing to describe God that gets most at, at his godness, what would that be? Certain people would say things like power. I mean, God is powerful, right? This is what we talk about when we talk about superheroes appearing as gods. They do so because they have a great deal of power. Is it, is it kindness? Is it the fact that he's a spirit? Some people might think of God sort of as the meaning behind everything, not, not being an embodied person, but either an unembodied power or force or giving meaning somehow to everything. Some people, frankly, I'm sure, think of him as some sort of white-haired Caucasian man who is fairly old but jacked, right? So he is super strong, but he's really old and he's a Caucasian man and he just sits there looking sour at everybody. The most basic thing to know about God and to have a concept of who he is from the very beginning, not only of John, but also of the Bible in Genesis, is that he is the creator. He is the one who has made everything. 
Not only is it the first thing that we learn about him in the book of Genesis, as a matter of fact, Genesis 1 and 2 can kind of be summarized as God has created all things. That is the very point of Genesis 1. It is the central fact of who God is. So in Isaiah 45, verses 18 through 19, we read this. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And that verse 18 is so central. He who created the heavens, he is God. Who is God? God is the one who has created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who has gone through and spoken and creation has come forth. Paul says in Romans 1 that it's the most basic fact of who he is can be seen by looking outside. What can be known about God is plain to them, that is sinners and the wicked people of the world, that is us, because God has shown it to them. Where has God shown who he is? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you know that God is who he is, that God is different from you, and he is incredibly powerful. He is creator of all things because there is creation. This is simply the fact that you look and you see creation. You look and you see something instead of nothing means that there is a God and you know something about him. Psalm 8, 1 through 4. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I looked at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It humbles us and it exalts God. It's very easy to see God is the creator. Even in our nine marks study, as we go through that in our community groups, what are we talking about tonight? And in biblical theology, the first thing he mentions is our God, is a, the God of the Bible is a creating God. He is a creator. That is impossible to not read the Bible and come away with that. This God creates. And so John here is being incredibly emphatic. In verse 1, we had the idea that the Word was with God and the Word was God. We talked about what all that meant. In verse 2, he goes back to talk about how he was in the beginning with God, setting aside the the distinction between them again. And then in verse 3, he kicks off what he's going to talk about. All things were made through him. So positively, everything that was made was made by this Word. There wasn't anything that wasn't made by this Word. He made it through him. God spoke and the word created. Negatively, he goes in to say, and you can tell how emphatic John is trying to be here, and without him was not anything made that was made. So not only did he make all things, if you want to put it positively, but putting it negatively, there's nothing that he didn't make that has been made. If it's been made, the word has made it. Now, we can come down to kind of a chicken and the egg scenario here, right? If the word was made, then the word had to have made itself because the word made everything and there wasn't anything made without the word. But then who made the word? Chicken and the egg might not have a, an answer to it, but we can answer this puzzle. The word was uncreated. The word didn't have a beginning. The word was not somehow a separate creation like Jehovah's Witnesses and other people tend to think, including Mormons. This is why they're heretics. This is why they are not true believers, because they do not understand what John is saying here. The word was in the beginning with God. There was never a time when the Son was not. There is never a time when the word was not. He is the one who has created everything. Hebrews 1-2 says this, 
In these last days he has spoken, God the Father has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In Colossians 1, 16-17, we read, By him, that is Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We often sing, as we are going to today, our hymn of response, God the Uncreated One. The author of that song rightly looks to Jesus as that God. He is enthroned in majesty. He talks about him being a king in that song. We rightly sing that Jesus is the uncreated one. We'll talk more about how Jesus is the uncreated one in the future, but nevertheless, this word is being set up as the uncreated word who then creates all things. So again, John is simply affirming that the word is God, but he uses this idea in a very interesting way because in verse 4 he turns around and he says, in him was life. There is life in no other. In him was life. Now we have life. And you can go to a biology notebook and you can open it up and you can look through it and they will give you characteristics of life. They will tell you there are certain things that need to happen in order for us to consider something alive. And frankly, almost every one of you have it, right? Some of you, I don't know if you're responding to me, so that might not be one of the things that you click off, but most of you have all of the, the characteristics of life. You're a living thing, but you don't have life in you as part of who you are. Christ can take that away anytime he wants to. But Jesus... The Son of God, the Word, who is God, is life in himself. In him is life. There is life in no one else. The life that we have is all derivative from him. We get it from him. We live because of him. Again, as Colossians say, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 will say this, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You live because Jesus says you live. When you die, you die because Jesus says you will die. He is the master and commander of everything. We only have life as he has given it to us. But then comes the even more interesting thing. In him was life, and we have our first bit of symbolism as John begins to explain to us what his symbolism is going to mean. And the life, or and life, was the light of men. Light is going to play a huge symbolic role as we go throughout the Gospel of John. And one of the things John is picking at very, very clearly is life and light are mixed together. When he talks about light, you ought to read it as having something to do with life. Not just the physical living of life, but even eternal life. Specifically here, he talks not just about life in general, like life is given to dogs and rats and it's given to birds and it's given to fish, but light as the, life as the light of men. So you look at early commentators, a lot of those early commentators want to take this as intelligence. What is the thing that sets mankind apart from all of the rest? And in the early church, and especially in the scholastic era, Anselm and Aquinas were very high on this being rationality and intelligence. Even earlier fathers such as Chrysostom and Augustine thought this. It's not necessarily wrong, but there's probably more to it than that. 
when God gives light to Adam, when he gives life to Adam, he does more than simply give him intelligence. It's not simply that we are intelligent and monkeys are dumb. It's that we are intelligent and we can relate to God in a way that monkeys can't. That we can know him and experience him, that we can see him in a way that no animal can do. So when Adam was made, he was made in such a way that he could walk with God in the garden. He could know him intimately. He could enjoy his fellowship in a way that other animals couldn't. And in that, he reflects something of God. What do we know of God from the very beginning? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's, there is a relationship there between the Word and God. As we come later, there's an even more intimate picture of that relationship as father and son. They were always father and son together. They always had a relationship with one another. They always spoke to one another. Jesus will talk about the glory that God gave him before the foundation of the world. No other animal mimics this. But humans do. Adam did. Adam was allowed to experience something of the glory of God. Adam was allowed to walk with God in the garden, to speak with him, and to be in his own company. Now in the prologue, we will find all of this woven through, not just in the prologue, but all the way through the Gospel of John. John seems to be intently focused on creation here, but we should know, because it's woven throughout the rest of the the gospel, that what he is saying is specifically something about how creation and salvation look alike. So because he uses this specifically of creation here, and from now on, he's going to talk about light almost always in terms of salvation. Your salvation, then, is a picture of creation, or creation is a picture of your salvation, or salvation is simply God creating you anew. This is exactly what Jesus talks about in John 3 when he talks to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. We're going to talk more about that passage. But Jesus is saying, you've got to have a whole new creation. You've got to start over from scratch. You can't just get away from your past and try and turn over a new leaf. There's a whole new creation that has to happen here. And Jesus, as he has brought life to men in the first, brings life again in his second. As God speaks and Jesus is revealed to the world in Genesis, now God has spoken and the word is revealed in salvation. All the same, he is giving light to men. He is bringing them back to a relationship with God. He is bringing them back to what Adam was supposed to know and would always have known. As Adam was created in the beginning to have a relationship with God, so even now Jesus has come to give the same to us again. Friends, just like you cannot make yourself You cannot call together particles to make yourself, just as the word could not have created itself. There is no way for you to drum up your salvation. You must trust in the Lord. John is setting this up from the beginning. It's not simply getting yourself together. It's it's not as though we can just look to the gospel for an example of selfless love and then match that in our lives and somehow God is going to look at that and say, yeah, you're all right. It's not as though Jesus is saying, what you really need is forgiveness And you really need to have your sins sort of covered and God to ignore them and then you can go forward. You need that. But that's not enough. John is saying you need an entirely new person and the only one who can do that work is God. In verse 5, we are reminded then very, very briefly of why we need that. Because as the light shines in the darkness, he says, it's a brilliant picture. If there is light that is life, then darkness is death. 
And darkness is, is ignorance and stupidity and foolishness and sin and eventually leading to death. D.A. Carson said of this verse, it is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity, and indeed it is. That ambiguity comes over one word, and it is the word in the ESV, which is overcome. Some of you have scriptures, I would assume, that use the word understood. And so in another passage or in another version of scripture, this passage might read, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. The Greek word can mean either one. It can mean overcome or understood. And I have no doubt that John picked it because it can do both. If we look at what it means to overcome the darkness, we can go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and and listen to how the light then overcomes the darkness. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The darkness is overcome by the light. This is the very nature of what light does. It, it can't possibly not scatter the darkness. It can't possibly not overcome the darkness. This isn't like when we talked about it's almost impossible to break the German code, right? Now, it, it might be the luckiest day of your short life, but there might be a day when you sit down and you say, I'm going to work on Enigma, and you break it, okay? You should have played the lotto instead, but nevertheless, that was your lucky day, right? So that is not impossible. That is just incredibly unlikely. But for light to not overcome darkness is impossible. Light must actually light. And in its lighting, it overcomes darkness. If it doesn't light, it's not a light. This seems pretty pedantic. But nevertheless, it needs to be said. So it is the very nature of light to overcome darkness. It is impossible for it not to. So therefore, even as sin is in the world, even as darkness and death have crept into the world, it is impossible for Jesus not to overcome those things. It is impossible for God not to overwhelm those things. The darkness does not stand a chance against this Jesus, against the incarnate word, against the Son of God. It cannot stand against him. And what is good is even our sin cannot stand against him. Our reluctance cannot stand against him. He will overwhelm us with his glory and his joy. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You won't anymore walk in sin and in death, but instead you will have the light, and that light is nothing less than life. So the darkness cannot overcome the light, but the darkness also does not understand the light. People throughout John's gospel will continue to misunderstand Jesus and what he is there for. We already talked about Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus wants to get Jesus to kind of explain to him what he's there for. And Jesus says, listen, you've got to be born again. And he says, I don't get this? Am I supposed to go into the womb again? Like, and, and that he knows it's a ridiculous statement. He, he's not a dumb man, but he's, he's saying, I don't understand what you're trying to say to me. There's a good reason why he doesn't. John tells us at the beginning of chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes by night to Jesus. He comes in darkness to Jesus, and so he doesn't understand Jesus. And so the whole interaction is already played out. That one word, he came to Jesus by night. We know what's going to happen. There's going to be misunderstanding. There's going to be apprehension, misapprehension of what Jesus is there for. In John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. It's a brilliant passage. 
man born blind, and Jesus heals him. And all the way through that particular passage, this man then stands before all of the, the synagogue leaders, and they pester him with questions. And he asks them why they don't understand. They say, how do you know this man came from God? We know that he's a sinner. And he says, this is a weird thing that you think he's a sinner because I've never heard of sinners healing guys born blind. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest who stands against Jesus, prophesies that it's better for one man to die for the entire nation than for the entire nation to perish. And what he means there is, well, listen, if we bring Jesus in and we kill him, then the Romans won't come and kill us. So it's better that Jesus die than we all die. And John says, you're indeed right, Caiaphas. But he turns around and says in verse 51, this, John does. Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, Caiaphas doesn't even know what he's saying. He's so in the dark that he speaks truth, but he doesn't even know he speaks truth. The darkness, those in the dark, don't understand Jesus. They can't overcome Jesus. Therefore, Jesus, who is the embodied word and the Son, brings light to those who would believe in him. He creates light in us again. He gives us a relationship with God again. He brings salvation to us that is like creation in the beginning. He gives us intimacy, knowledge, and experience of himself as God. And our sin cannot overwhelm his grace. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. But we also have two very sincere warnings that also play through the Gospel of John. First, the warning of lesser lights. Just as we have two Dugs in this church, and we always have to differentiate between them, we have to then differentiate between the Johns. There is John the Apostle who wrote this, who is never named in his own book. He only talks about himself as the beloved disciple. But there is another John in the book named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an incredibly important man in the early church, so important that he actually sneaks his way into the prologue here, which some people find difficult because it does seem a little out of place. He's talking about all these highfalutin sort of philosophical, metaphysical things, and then he just starts talking about John the Baptist. But there's a reason why he begins to talk about John the Baptist. John's ministry was commissioned by God. Luke records somewhat interestingly, not only the virgin birth of Jesus, but the somewhat miraculous birth of John as his mom and dad had struggled like so many people in Israelite history to conceive and have a child. So John's parents did as well, and John was born out of that. And so there seems to be something of a miraculous birth, and what that is pictured is, this birth is important. You need to pay attention to it, but it is overshadowed almost immediately by the virgin birth of Jesus, which Luke clearly records in his gospel. So here, we have another hint of the grand importance of John. Not only does he find his way into the introduction, but even the words that the apostle uses to describe him become important. There was a man, he says, sent from God. Throughout the rest of the gospel, the one sent from God, the one who is always sent from God, is the Son. The Son is always sent from God. God sent his Son even as we read in John 3.16, God gave his son. In John 3.17, we have that cleared up for us a little bit. He is not just sent or not just given, but for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. John is commissioned like Jesus is commissioned. So John then, the apostle, comes back and clarifies. He came as a witness. He wasn't commissioned as Jesus was commissioned. Jesus was commissioned to bring glory to himself and to the Father, but John was commissioned not for himself, but for the sake of Jesus. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. It's not that the result is the same as the purpose, but the purpose was that John would come and say, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and all of the world would turn and know Jesus. His whole ministry was to point at someone else, as he will say at the end of chapter 3, I am to decrease, he is to increase. John's whole point was to point at somebody else. This is no different than what we are called to do. As a matter of fact, Jesus and the gospel begins to extend that to all believers. Even as John was sent from God in order to go and to be a witness for Jesus, so the rest of the gospel points at us doing the same. It points at us first in an example in John 9. Again, the man born blind, Jesus says this to him in John 9, chapter 5 through 7. Excuse me, John 9, verses 5 through 7. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, that picture of light. By the way, I didn't talk about this, but the picture of light and seeing goes really well together. And so darkness and blindness and light and seeing get played off of one another, not only through the ninth chapter, but through the entire gospel. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he goes and he says, You are to go to that pool. That pool means scent, John says. That's not, that's not just a geographical hint as to what pool he was in. It's a theological hint as to what this man is going to do. And then what happens? He is called before all of the church, all of the synagogue, and he is made to declare the greatness of Jesus Christ who has healed him, a man who was born blind. He was sent to do that. Later on, Jesus will talk about us. In John 17, 18, as I sent As you sent me, he's talking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We, like John and like the man born blind, having been healed from Christ, are to be witnesses to what Christ has done. We are to shine with his light, pointing people toward the goodness and the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's a little bit of a warning, however, in verse 8. John wants us to be very clear about who John was. And this is a warning for all of us because we are very easily confused about this. He says, he was not the light. The Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This is very easy to get these things confused. And as you go through the rest of John, you will find that people aren't really confused about the the man John the Baptist as much as they are confused about the signs. They're going to confuse all of the miracles of Jesus for what they say about Jesus. They want the miracles. They don't really care about Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus will go away from them after feeding miraculously 5,000 of them, and he will go to another part of the lake, and they will walk all the way around. They'll find him, and he will say to them, I'm telling you, you came to find me not because of who I am, but primarily because I fed your bellies. That is doing exactly what John is warning us here about. Sarah Groves has a song that I really do love. It's about 
her describing herself as a moon. She is the moon, and God is the sun. And she, she's made to shine, but she can't unless she's actually turned toward him, right? She's nothing but a cold, dark rock outside of it. What the apostle is warning us about is mistaking things for, that simply reflect the light of God, that reflect the light of Jesus Christ for the actual thing. It's very easy for us to fall into. We easily confuse the things that show us the light for the thing that is the light. For instance, in community, we, I talked about community groups. We try to build community here. We want people to be involved in our church, not simply because we want them to be involved, but we want this to be a home for them. We want them to know that they can come here and be encouraged in the Lord, to hear the word of the Lord, to be encouraged in their walk, for people to love on them, to take care of them, to have their needs met. We want visitors to know all of those things are true, that they will be welcomed for and cared for if they join in community with us. And these things are necessary. They're absolutely necessary, but they are totally insufficient. If we start to think that we are going to build community and community is the thing that we're going after, we lose Christ. We focus on the brilliance of the moon instead of the brilliance of the sun. We focus on John the Baptist instead of Jesus the Messiah. Our love for one another is to be a reflection or a witness of our love for Christ. Why do we love each other? Because he first loved us. We join a community not for the sake of the community, not for the sake that we might feel like we were a part of something. We join in community because we're already a part of something. We join in community because we already know and experience the love of Christ. Likewise, causes. It's easy to think that causes, even excellent ones, are more important than they should be. And we prayed for Beacon of Hope. We pray for the end of abortion. And even now, as, as Judge Kavanaugh is set to go through the confirmation hearings, we should pray for that end. We should understand that there is a real, tangible, possible end to the, the constitutional right for abortion in this country, and we ought to be very grateful for that. But the second, friends, that you confuse that for the gospel, and you think that Kavanaugh being placed on the Supreme Court is a win for Christianity, you're crazy. That is a reflection of the good things that God does. It is a reflection of his character, and therefore we ought to affirm it. But if you think that that's going to change people's hearts and minds, if you think that that's actually going to move them from being somebody who would consider an abortion to somebody who's not going to, it might. It might because they don't want to get in legal trouble for it, but I guarantee you the sinfulness of their heart is still there. Changing the law is indeed a reflection of the goodness of Christ in our world, but it is not Christ. This is true for every moral category that you can possibly think of. We don't want to make moral people we don't need more Pharisees like Micah read about this morning who stand aloof from everybody else, thanking God that they're not like all the other sinners. We don't need more people like that. We need people who know the Lord. It is easy to misplace the moon for the sun. So be on guard about that, friends. And third, there is a warning of fake light. John was a real and true light. That light was pointing somewhere else, but there is also this problem of fake light. Listen to verse 9, the true light. Why would he say the true light? He says the true light because there are plenty of false 
lights out there. There are plenty of lights that would call for your attention, that would call for your devotion, but they are not true and real lights. Matthew 24, 24 through 28 says this. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Let us stop there at verse 24. He says, false Christs will arise. People will arise that will try and drag you away from the one true and living Christ. And even here, John would say the one true light. Many false prophets and many fake messiahs appear in the New Testament age. We have three of them listed in scripture. Thudas in Acts 5.36. He rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. He took a number of people down to the Jordan. This isn't in the book of Acts. This is actually in a Jewish historian named Josephus. He took a number of these people down to the Jordan, claiming that he, like, um, like Joshua before him, was going to dry up the Jordan so that they could walk and pass through it. Before he got a chance to do that, the Romans ran him through. Bummer. Acts 5.37, Judah the Galilean was next. After him, that is after Thudas, Judah the Gal- Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. In Acts 21, we have the mentioning of some Egyptian that Paul is mistaken for. He say, aren't you the Egyptian that led 4,000 people astray? Josephus, at that point, comes in, not in the book of Acts, but in his own writings, and says, actually, it was more like 30,000 people that he led astray, claiming to be the Messiah. Oh, frankly, we just don't have many people standing up and claiming to be the Messiah today. And most of those who do can be checked off pretty easily because they're, they're not Jewish, right? So the Messiah has to be Jewish at the very least, but... Nevertheless, that doesn't stop people from falsely claiming these things. We don't need a Messiah to do this. Many proclaim salvation and hope and peace in a number of other things. You listen to enough people, you will be assured that you can find peace in yoga and in Eastern meditation. You can find resilience through those things and a strengthening of your body through those things. We have an unfortunate an unfortunate impulse in America to think that we can achieve peace through law. Now, all we need to do is tell people what should be right, and then immediately they're sort of going to do it. We have a feeling that drugs, illicit and legal, can bring balance and well-being. That medicine or science is the hope for the future. Whether it's in the excesses of materialism or in the weirdness of those who want nothing to do with materialism, want to live in a 400-square-foot house out on the Colorado Rockies, making their own fire from whatever they find on hand, right? Regardless of what it is, everyone thinks that it is something in this world. We can apply some tool, we can apply something here in this world that will make our lives better, and we can achieve something of salvation. Now, they might not term it salvation, but it's at least a relief from the problems of the world. Whatever the problems of the world are, we have at our disposal, human disposal, a way in order to fix the things that are wrong. Whether it's science or technology or laws or simply getting away from people or rather it's winning over people, it's, it's better education, whatever the case might be, we have at our disposal tools that will allow us hope and salvation in the end. And what does John say? He says, absolutely not the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming 
into the world. He was sent from outside the world. He comes from the Father. There is nothing that we have that can lead us there. There's nothing that we have that will ever get us salvation. There's nothing that we have that will ever bring us true and lasting and abiding peace, specifically with God and even with our neighbors. John here is warning us to be on guard against these things, of thinking of something else that can provide us with the things that we need when Jesus is the only one who can provide us with the things we need. There is light and hope in nothing else. There is life in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is only one man who is able to reconcile God the Father and us. There is only one man who is able to give life. There is only one man who can establish light in a dark world. And he is none other than the word made flesh, the light of the world, and God, the uncreated one, who is sent to the world to give you hope and life and salvation. Don't, don't be confused and struggle after all these other things that will not help you. Winning the lotto is not the answer to your problems. Drugs and alcohol, not the answer to your problems. Getting a little bit of religion, making yourself a little bit more moral, not the answer to your problems. Going back to the previous point, showing up to church ain't the answer to your problems. Showing up to community group, not the answer to your problems. Saying a couple of prayers before you eat food, not the answer to your problems. The answer to your problem is Jesus Christ. It is a full-throated, life-changing trust in what he has done and he alone. Now, all that other stuff might come from it. You might get moral, you ought to, get moral from that. You probably will say more prayers of thanksgiving after that. You probably will turn away from drugs, and some of your life will get better. All those things might be part and parcels of what it means to have salvation, but they in themselves are not the light of the world. It is only Jesus Christ. The prologue forces these ideas upon us. John reaffirms them at the end of his gospel. When Jesus did in John 20, 30 through 31, John, helpfully at the very end, because he expects you to read his gospel more than once, at the very end tells you why he wrote the gospel. We, we would look at that and say we could have used that 20 verses earlier, 20 chapters earlier, but nevertheless, at least he gives it to you. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, do not trust in anything else. There is one place for you to get life. There is one place for you to get light. There is one place for you to know forever eternal security, and that is only in Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. Let us give thanks for him. Father God, we are thankful that you have not left us in the dark. Sinful, turning away from you, worthy of wrath, ignorant, foolish. But you have given us light. You have given us knowledge. You have given us hope through your Son. The same word that you created all things through, you have given to us again that you might reconcile all things to yourself. As we stand to sing, may our words be true. May your name be praised, for you are God, the uncreated one.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.